want to say a few uh, personal things about my story before I get started tonight. A lot of people have been asking me questions. I didn't grow up uh, with any kind of faith at all, and I'm actually a convert to Judaism. My wife and children and I, we converted to Judaism. I wasn't born Jewish. I wasn't born Christian. I wasn't born anything. I was raised atheist. And um, I'm not going to tell my whole story because then I'll take up too much time, but To make a long story short, my early introduction into the faith, I got into a certain way of thinking about God and faith that was very literal. And around 2008, that wasn't working for me anymore. Problem is, I was a rabbi of a synagogue, and I started questioning certain things that I had believed in my early religious life. And I like the advice that, um, I forget which pastor said it, some famous pastor gave advice. When you're a pastor or a rabbi, I guess it applies to rabbis too, and you start having doubts about your faith, don't quit your job because it may resolve itself. And uh, so I didn't talk to my congregants about my doubts, but I started to wonder if I could really, certain foundations got taken out from under me, and I wondered, will there be any faith left when I follow all of these questions? And a great thing happened. I discovered that there were smart people who knew the problems but still believed. And interestingly, because I disagree with this man so much now, I even challenged him in front of a thousand scholars once at Society of Biblical Literature, uh, the first hero who came to my rescue was N.T. Wright. I picked up his book, uh, The New Testament and the People of God. Now, the reason I picked his book up is that one day I was in Borders. Remember when Borders was still around? Not around anymore. I saw it on the shelf. I bought it. I, you know, it's this thick. And I thought, one day I'll have time to read that book. It was just sitting on my shelf. But when I came to this period of doubt, the book was there. It was there for me when I needed it. I picked it up. I started reading it. And I said, my gosh, this guy is smart. And look, he understands the problems. And I I got absorbed with it. And then I went out and bought the second one in the series, Jesus and the Victory of God. You know how thick that one is? This thick. And then I just started reading all the historical Jesus books. I I probably got 30-something of them now. I just started reading them, reading them, reading them, reading them. And if you stack them all up, they're probably as long as a pew. And I condensed it all down into this book, which is only $15. And if you get the set of three, it's such a deal. It's only $45. No, $40. It would be $45, but it's only $40 for all three. So you save $5. But really, this is is what I try to do. I try to take really complex things and make them simpler and more readable. And, you know, uh, understanding Yeshua in context is hard, even for Messianic Jews, because we've all been influenced by people who had totally different assumptions than Yeshua and his disciples had. A lot of people, there's just been a history of people, Jewish people, Christian people, secular people, interpreting Jesus from modern assumptions that don't have anything to do with the world or the place in which he lived. And a lot of things that we think we know about Jesus just aren't true. And um, so that's what Yeshua in context is all about. And I, I believe people don't have long attention spans, so I usually write short books. Uh, Because that's really why I didn't read the New Testament and the people of God for years. It was because it was such a thick book. I mean, it was such a time commitment. But I was totally willing to follow wherever things would lead. You know, I was young enough. I probably could find another career if I couldn't be a rabbi anymore. But as I began to look into it, you know, I realized that there was still faith after some of my early, overly literal assumptions were pulled out from under me. And I didn't have to give up on it. 
And I came into the topic of divine Messiah the same way, you know, is, is this thing we believe about Yeshua being divine, is it really a betrayal of Judaism? Does it make us blasphemers and heretics? But the interesting thing is that my colleagues in the UMJC were so strong about this particular subject, and that, that encouraged me. And I found out about great authors, so I found, uh, I've learned that some of the folks at uh, Messianic Studies Institute, did I get the name right? Messianic Studies Institute, already reading these books. Uh, and it's fabulous. People like Richard Balcom, people like Daniel Boyarin, people like Chris Tilling, great, great thinkers. And I found that absolutely Yeshua is God alongside God. Well, tonight we're going to talk about how the early believers, how we know that the early believers believed this. They believed it before the New Testament was written. And I want to start with an example of something. I won't tell you what it is just yet. You may pick up here pretty soon that this is about something that's pretty familiar to you, but I want to introduce it to you in a roundabout way. Uh, in the ancient world, people could interpret a text creatively and even believe that it had multiple meanings. That's interesting to me because I was taught in Bible college, I went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, I was taught that every verse in the Bible had one and only one meaning. But in the ancient world, people believed that every text had multiple meanings. In many cases, if we read some of the things ancient people would write about interpreting a text, especially the Bible, we would scratch our heads and say, that's not what the author meant. Jewish interpretation was like that also. There was a plain meaning, and it was not ignored, but there were also creative interpretations. Now, this kind of Jewish writing that made this style famous is in the Midrashim, which is the plural of the word Midrash, the Midrashim of the early rabbis. A Midrash on a text often finds a meaning that the author did not intend. If you were to engage one of the ancient rabbis and say, Isaiah wasn't talking about that, they would say, so what? It's still there. The rule, though, in a good midrash, because you can see how this could get out of hand if you just start making allegories and comparisons, and uh, the, the, the controlling thing in a midrash is this, though. The truth of the sacred scripture has to be protected in some way. And how did the good rabbis protect it? Any creative meaning that they found in text of the Bible had to be known on other grounds. You had to be able to prove it from the plain meaning of other texts for it to be solid. And I tell you, be careful about arguing with the ancient rabbis. Sometimes they'll say something crazy and you'll say, no way. Then you'll find out later they explain where they got it from and they have very good evidence for what they say. Now, the early believers in Yeshua did the same thing. They interpreted texts creatively. They made a midrash on a passage in Isaiah chapter 45 about every knee bowing to God. Now the original, and we say it of course in the Elenu uh, every week. I think you guys say the Elenu every week. You do. Uh, the original passage in Isaiah 45 says a few things about God, including there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. One of the clearest statements of monotheism in the entire Bible. And yet, from this chapter, the early believers made a midrash about Yeshua being God alongside God. Isaiah 45 more famously says, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. But here's the thing. The early believers were aware of another version of the Bible 
the Greek version, the Septuagint, the LXX. And you need to know, by the way, sometimes people think, oh, the Greek version of the Bible, that was just what the Gentiles wrote. No, Jews made the Greek translation of the Bible, not Gentiles. And you need to know that the best uh, researchers of textual criticism of the Hebrew Bible, like Immanuel Tov, say that there once existed Hebrew manuscripts that were closer to the Septuagint. What I'm saying is, is there used to be Hebrew texts that read like the Septuagint. Why don't we have those anymore? Because they all crumbled up into little pieces and they don't exist anymore. What we have now is the Masoretic text preserved by the medieval rabbis. And the medieval rabbis began making sure that all of the texts agreed. But before they did that, there was some variety. There were different readings. Occasionally there'd be extra words in the manuscript. And the Septuagint is based on a manuscript that's a little different than the manuscript we have today. Sometimes there would be two extra words or two words might be missing. And the early believers were aware of another version of Isaiah 45, 23. It said, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear to God. Let me read the two again. The Masoretic text says, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. The Septuagint says, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear to God. The difference is just a minor thing. To God is added into the text. But on the other hand, if we were to ask the question, which one did Isaiah write? That's a complicated question. I won't get into all the dramatics of that, but is, it, did it, is the earliest version the one that says to God at the end or the one that doesn't have to God at the end? We really can't answer that question. We don't know. But is it possible for creative minds reading the version that's in the Greek to see two people being referred to here in this verse. Think about it. Could you creatively find two people in this verse? To me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear to God. You could say maybe the me is not the same person as the God at the end. In fact, you could say maybe the me that is speaking is Messiah. So maybe to me, Messiah, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear to God. And so the early believers found in Isaiah 45, 23, a reference to both God and Yeshua. And they turned it into an early hymn. They used it as a part of an early hymn, which you will recognize when you hear it. Maintain this attitude among yourselves, which was also in Messiah Yeshua, who being in the form of God did not regard this being equal to God as something to be exploited, but instead emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. And becoming in human likeness and finding himself in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, indeed death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Yeshua every knee should bow among the heavenly and earthly and netherworld spheres." And every tongue should acknowledge that Yeshua the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, the name that is above every name, yod heh vav -He, Hashem, the name of the God of Israel, that is Yeshua's name. And you see that they interpreted Isaiah 45, 23 as being about bowing to Yeshua, even though it's in the same chapter that says, there is no other God besides me. Now, where did Paul get this from? Well, Paul didn't write it. Scholars of the New Testament notice that there are a number of different hymns 
or creeds that are included in the New Testament. One of the clues is it will use different language than Paul uses. It will use a different style. It will look somewhat uh, poetic, or the words will be arranged in shorter phrases. Paul likes long, long sentences and phrases. These have short, catchy lines. Uh, It's something earlier than Paul's letter to the Philippians, which is written in the 50s. It's something that's been around long enough, and the interesting thing is, Paul is actually in that chapter making a point about humility. He's not making a point about the divinity of Messiah. He's making an ethical point. He's, in other words, here's what he's doing. He's saying, hey look, we all know Yeshua is God alongside God. I mean, that was assumed. Here's why you should be humble. He didn't hold on to that. He left it and came down here to be one of us. In other words, the believers in Philippi knew of a creed that long predated them and that made a midrash on Isaiah 45, 23, and that read Yeshua into it. It had been around for quite a long time. It was something from the early believers, not something that Paul made up. Now, the early believers made a similar midrash on the Shema, and you'll find that midrash in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Now, as you know, the, the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, and by the way, there's more than one way to translate the Shema, but I'll use the familiar translation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, there's a curious feature of the Shema which led the early believers to a creative interpretation. The curious thing is that Deuteronomy 6.4 has two divine names in it, God and Lord, Elohim and yod heh vav Now, from this peculiar feature of the text, a custom developed among the apostles as referring it to Israel's God as God and Yeshua as Lord. Remember I told you, when you're reading Paul's letters, most of the time when it says the Lord, it means Yeshua, it doesn't mean the Father. They had a custom of referring to God as God and Yeshua as the Lord. So we find expressions in the New Testament like God our Father and the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. That's how they liked to divide it out. It made sense to them. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6 has been called the New Testament Shema. And I'm going to read it to you here. I think it's on your handout. It appears to take the two names for God in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and make an expanded creed out of them. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Messiah Yeshua, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. You know, if you sit and think about the prepositions in this statement, It's actually saying that Yeshua created everything for the Father. Everything came through Yeshua for the Father. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Messiah Yeshua, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now what we see in both of these midrashes by early believers is that Yeshua was placed in a class with God. God is in a class of his own. No one shares a class with God. Angels, and perhaps some of the holy people like Moses, Enoch, or Elijah who were in heaven, could possibly be thought of as semi-divine beings. But God is not like angels or glorified saints. God alone is the infinite, and there is none besides him. Yet Yeshua is, according to the early believers, in the same class with God. Yeshua, like God, is in a class alone. And yet, it is still true that there is only one God. 
confused. Imagine how it was for them. In their world, this was not only confusing, it was blasphemy. In our world, especially living as the majority religion in the United States, saying Jesus is God won't get you into any trouble. In their world, saying that Yeshua was the Son of Man even could get you 39 lashes in the synagogue. They would definitely have to worry about this confusing truth of there being a plurality within the unity of God. Now, many people cry out in frustration. In fact, I've had a lot of questions about this. Just before I came in here, I was uh, having some questions about this in uh, Rabbi's office. If Yeshua is God alongside God, why doesn't the New Testament say so in plain language? I want to give you some of the reasons. I'm going to be uh, telling you more reasons why we know from the New Testament that the early believers clearly regarded Yeshua as divine. But first, let me summarize why they don't say it plainly. Number one, the New Testament, contrary to what you may have been taught in some classes somewhere, is not a theology book. The New Testament is not a theology book. Okay, let's think about it. The Gospels are biography. Now, I'll grant you, they don't, the Gospels don't read exactly like biography in our day, but if you read Greco-Roman biographies, the Gospels are pretty much right in that category. That's the way they used to write biographies. They liked short sayings. They liked little short stories about what people did, and they especially preferred things from eyewitnesses rather than secondhand accounts. The Gospels are biography designed to persuade people to follow Yeshua. The Gospels are not there to talk theology with you. They're there to show you the beauty of his life and his sayings so that you'll be inspired and want to follow him. They don't try to answer all the questions. Who was he really? How does he relate to the Father? What kind of diagrams of the Trinity can we make? The Gospels aren't interested in that. What are the epistles? Even Romans. Everyone thinks Romans is a theology book. It's a letter. It's a letter written about certain crises, questions, and issues that had been raised. And so, although it may contain some theological sections, Paul, in his letters, is not trying to connect all the dots and make everything fit into one systematized theology. It's dealing with problems, crises, and questions, usually with the underlying issues unstated because the people who receive the letter know what the issues are. And we have to go back and guess what the issues were. It's like finding a letter that someone really wrote to another person, and you don't know the whole history of what went on between the two people, and you're trying to determine from the letter why the lady is mad at the man. And you might make some wrong assumptions reading that letter. And people have been making wrong assumptions about Paul's letters for quite a long time. Oh, which is why I wrote this other book. Paul didn't eat pork, $15. Or one-third of 40 if you buy it in a set. It may sound hard to believe, but the divinity of Messiah was not a controversy to the early believers. I'm going to talk about this first thing tomorrow morning. There's a difference between the generation that witnessed Yeshua and the generation that wrote the New Testament. They're 50 years apart. There's no controversy among the early believers about the divinity of Messiah. It's not debated in the New Testament because everyone within the movement agreed with it. It was assumed. We see the things that are argued about in the New Testament. The divinity of Yeshua is not one of them. Before the New Testament was written, the early believers had strongly and universally agreed that Messiah is divine. By the way, I don't always remember what words I left in blank, so if I need to go back over a word, I just put those there to make sure you're staying on your toes. Did I give you all the catch words you were supposed to write? 
Okay, good. Now, the controversy over Yeshua's divinity was not within the movement. It was from outside of the movement. It was the reason Paul was persecuting believers before he had that vision on the road to Damascus. It was the reason synagogues were kicking people out. It was the reason that late in the first century, John could write about synagogues and call them synagogues of Satan. It's not because Jews are insidious and have little horns under our yarmulkes. It's because uh, synagogues were actually hurting believers by making them subject to Roman laws and kind of being put out there as what the Romans would consider atheists. But that's another story for another time. The belief in Messiah's divinity appears full-blown within the first 50 years after Yeshua went away. It was not debated. It was not one of the problem areas like some other well-known issues. What's the most well-known thing to argue about in the New Testament? The role of Gentiles. Other things they argued about. The timing of the last days. I like the guy who said, I don't need a job. Yeshua's coming back. Y'all have to share your food with me. Or, how to be faithful to God among the temples of Greece and Rome. Oh, come on. They sacrificed this meat to an idol, but we know the idol's nothing. I can eat the meat, right? In the early half of the first century, it happened so suddenly that there are no records of the way the innovation came about. There are no records of how people came to believe in the divine Messiah realization. They didn't think it would be an an issue for debate. They assumed everyone would believe it like they did. The early community of Yeshua followers started believing and practicing something beyond any previous concept. That's what I covered this morning. The Hebrew Bible brings us up to the threshold of realizing that Yeshua is God alongside God, that God could be capable of a plurality within unity, but it doesn't cross the line. Judaism kept bringing God closer and closer to the people without making God become one of us. The divine Messiah realization is stepping over that line. It's saying God eventually got so close he became one of us. While the Judaisms of the Second Temple period speculated about God's chief agents, great heroes of the faith like Enoch, chief angels like Yahoel, or personifications of God's attributes like the Logos, the wisdom, the early Jewish believers started reverencing Yeshua as one of equal standing with God. They did not reverence Enoch or Yahoel or the Logos. Neither did any Jewish group that we know of. No Jewish group ever showed a full pattern of religious devotion to anyone besides God the way they showed it to Yeshua. No one was going around saying, Enoch is Lord. It didn't become a slogan. They didn't even get t-shirts with that printed on it or bumper stickers. People did not live their lives with a great desire to please the angel of the Lord and hope that they would be found in him. They didn't say, oh, if I could only gain the angel of the Lord, my life would be worth something. They were not hoping to be found in the Logos and in the likeness of the Logos. They did not pray to the wisdom of God. God and Yeshua are together in a class alone, and that class is deity. There's not a single record of the early believers disagreeing about this. Controversies over the understanding of the identity of Messiah happened after the New Testament. They started happening when people tried to make it into a systematic theology, and that's when it got really difficult. When you just leave everything a little bit undefined and mysterious, and you just call Yeshua Lord and God God, you can kind of get away with it. But then when you try to figure out, well, how can there be a plurality within a unity, and we should make a chart and show how it works, that's when you start having arguments. What are some of the ways that we can tell that they truly believed Yeshua was divine? 
the true marker of their view of Yeshua was not titles. A lot of the early studies of the divinity of Yeshua get hung up on titles. What does Son of God mean? What does Son of Man mean? You may have heard some sermons where people, Son of God means he was God. No, it doesn't. That's what, the, that's what the Messiah is called. That's what the kings from the line of David are called. They're called the Son of God. Son of God in Judaism means one of the descendants of David. It doesn't necessarily mean divine. And Son of Man could mean Son of Man just like a human being, or it could mean like Daniel 7, Son of Man, who seems to be standing beside God while everyone else is bowing with God. Which one does he mean? Why do you think Yeshua went around calling himself the Son of Man? Because you can't quite stone him for blasphemy for saying it because maybe he means it the innocent way or maybe he means it the not so innocent way titles is not how they knew yeshua was divine it's not in the phrase son of god it's not in the phrase son of man neither were they doctrines stated in words they didn't have the apostles creed or the nicene creed they weren't talking about god of very god and all that stuff they weren't talking about homoousia and homoousius and all the things that theologians began to argue about. The way we see that they believed Yeshua was God was in their scandalous practices of religious devotion, worship. Messianic believers still argue over this today. Am I allowed to pray to Jesus? Paul did. Sometimes Messianic Jewish believers say, we're, being, we're not being Jewish enough. We should only pray to the Father through Jesus. And it is true. That's the primary pattern of the New Testament. But if you want a precedent for someone praying to Jesus, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Three times I petitioned the Lord to take it away from me. And he said, my kindness is sufficient for you. He's talking about Jesus. He's not talking about the Father. The early believers showed devotion to Yeshua in ways only proper to practice toward God. And the evidence of these worship practices involving Yeshua is that they come from the earliest years of the movement. I began Friday night by talking about the Hebrew and Aramaic words that show up in Paul's letters to the Greeks. How did the Greeks know words like Abba and Amen and Maranatha, or Maranatha as you might pronounce it? They knew about it because the believers from the land of Israel passed the faith out to the diaspora. And so Hebrew and Aramaic terms came to these Greeks in foreign lands. They were so uniformly believed and practiced, these, meth- these ways of reverencing Messiah, they were so uniformly believed and practiced within the Jewish Yeshua movement and the spreading Gentile Yeshua movement that there's no evidence of disagreement about it. What are these elements of worship? What are these patterns that have been left behind marking one of the greatest turning points in all time of religion? Larry Hurtado, in the book, How on Earth Did Jesus Become a God?, lists six of them. They were hymns about Jesus, sung as part of the early Christian worship. They were prayer to God through Jesus and in Yeshua's name, and even direct prayer to Jesus himself, including particularly the invocation of Jesus in the corporate worship setting. They were calling upon the name of Jesus, particularly in Christian baptism, in healing, and in exorcism. The Christian common meal enacted as a sacred meal where the risen Jesus presides as Lord of the gathered community. The practice of ritually confessing Jesus in the context of Christian worship. 
Christian prophecy as oracles of the risen Jesus and the Holy Spirit of prophecy understood as the Spirit of Jesus. All right, let's talk first about hymns. They sang about Yeshua, and they had exalted things to say about Yeshua in song. Romans 1, 3-4 is a famous pre-existing creed or hymn of the early believers. Just like the one in Philippians 2, Romans 1, 3-4 is clearly not written in Paul's words. He's quoting something else. Even Bart Ehrman in his book, uh, what, what was Bart Ehrman's book titled? If I can't remember the name of it. I think it's How Jesus Became a God. Larry Hurtado's was How on Earth Did Jesus Become a God? And then Bart Ehrman's book, Disagreeing with Hurtado's, like How Jesus Became a God. Even Bart Ehrman says that Paul didn't write this. That was much earlier than Paul. And here's how it goes. Descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Messiah Yeshua our Lord. In songs, they called him things like the image of the invisible God. In Colossians, they said he is before all things and that he made all things. And then, in addition to hymns, there's prayer. Now, the one I'm interested in the most is the rare instance of direct prayer to Jesus. There are a few possible examples of it, but none so clear as the one I've already mentioned where Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. More often than Yeshua is mentioned, more often though, Yeshua is mentioned in prayers with such lines as, the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua, or through Messiah Yeshua. Now related to their practice of praying and including Yeshua in the prayer is the idea of calling on Yeshua's name. If you know the Torah, Uh, In Genesis, calling on the name means worshiping or praying to. And the early believers called on the name of Yeshua. As a matter of fact, Paul makes a midrash on Joel in Romans 10. Joel said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But remember, to the early believers, the Lord was Yeshua. So if you read Romans 10 carefully, you'll see that Paul is not talking about people calling on God the Father. He's talking about them calling on Yeshua. Whoever calls on, I mean, Joel didn't know there was going to be this divine Messiah when he wrote it. So, you know, we could do the thing where we scratch our heads and say, that's not what Joel meant. It didn't matter. You could interpret text creatively. And so Paul is reusing it in Romans 10. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, as in Yeshua, will be saved. Paul defines a believer by this statement. He says in 1 Corinthians 1-2, at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, When he's describing who are the real believers, the ones he's writing his letter to, he says, whoever calls on the name of our Lord Yeshua. Who's a believer? Someone who calls on the name of our Lord Yeshua. People were baptized in the name of Yeshua. No one was ever baptized in the name of the angel of the Lord. People were delivered in his name. The apostles would go out and and say, in the name of the Lord Yeshua, we heal you. And miracles were done in the name of the Lord Yeshua, not in the name of the angel of the Lord or Enoch. People were saved in his name. Now, when I was in Bible college, this was, you know, when I still didn't know where I was going to come out in the spectrum of Christian, Jewish, all that stuff. I uh, used to have interesting conversations with people on my dorm floor about why in the world do churches do things the way they do them? And one of the things that really amazed us 
is that people would come and gather at church and stay together for one hour, and then everyone would go out to a restaurant or to the house to go eat afterward. But in the New Testament, we read that people brought food with them, and everyone ate a meal together. So this is a big deal at Tikvat David. We make a big deal out of our own egg. I mean, we, we have amazing own eggs, and frequently we'll stay five or six hours for own egg, talking and stuff. And it just seems weird to me that people will drive all that way, go to all that trouble, dress up, get together for one hour, and then go home or go to Golden Corral. I don't understand it. The early believers always ate a meal, and they considered eating a meal together to be something sacred. In fact, and so wait a minute, let me go back to my story of being at Moody Bible Institute. When I planted Tikvat David, I made this idea of us eating a meal together a really big deal, and people thought I was doing it because it was a Jewish thing. Oh, you know all about Oneg. Yeah, Jews, we eat together. Actually, I, did, I got it from the New Testament before, I guess the New Testament got it from it being a Jewish custom too, uh, that you should eat a meal together when you gather together. In fact, there's a whole section at Society of Biblical Literature where I'm headed next weekend in San Diego. There's a whole section. You've got all these topics of biblical study. There are probably about 50 or 100 different seminars and topics that people follow. One of them is sacred meals in the Bible and tradition. There are a lot of sacred meal things going on in the Bible, both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. The meals of the early believers were sacred meals, but they weren't the first sacred meal. There were sacred meals around before the New Testament. It's called the offering, most translations call it the peace offering or the fellowship offering or the well-being offering. It was a sacred meal that the people ate together. They came together for the feasts and everybody brought something and they sacrificed it and they had a big barbecue and they ate it in the presence of God after they gave the priest a little part and burned a little part to God. Well, the early believers had a sacred meal too, which you could say was comparable to the sacrifices that the people were allowed to eat at the temple. As a matter of fact, I've enjoyed the privilege of worshiping uh, with some Episcopalians. I don't know if any of you have ever been to an Episcopal service, but they really sanctify everything on an altar like it, just like it is a sacrifice in the temple. I mean, they it's high church. They make it almost like you're really in the temple. Of course, then you only get a little dip of bread that you can dip in a cup afterwards, but instead of a big meal. But, you know, still they have the ceremony and the sense of holiness of this thing, the sacred meal. The early believers ate a meal after their services, a meal which has been called the Lord's Supper. Years ago, Moish Rosen, you know, the founder of Jews for Jesus, he wrote this hilarious story. You know, he started going to a Baptist church in New York, and they told him they were going to have communion next week. And he said, what's communion? They said, oh, it's kind of like your Passover. So he skipped breakfast that Sunday. <laughs> and when they gave him the little cracker and the little thimble full of juice, he's like, oh, these Gentiles. <laughs> they ate a meal that's been called the Lord's Supper. Does anybody know the other name for the meal? You'd have to be careful today about putting this on your sign. If you put this on your sign out on the street, people might get the wrong idea. They called it a love feast. You don't want to put that on your sign, right? We're going to have a love feast after service every Saturday. That's what they called it, an agape feast or a love feast. It was not just wine and bread, but it was a meal with wine and bread included, which is, of course, not difficult at all for you all to understand in Jewish tradition. The wine they called the cup of the Lord. Now, have you ever been in any communion anywhere where someone had the cup of Enoch? Now, I just thought after I said that, there is a cup of Elijah. But that's just a cup we leave in case Elijah shows up. 
We don't believe that Elijah's present at the meal unless he does show up, and so far he hasn't shown up at any of mine. I don't know if he's shown up at any of yours. David Wolpe in one of his books says that his parents, when he was young, would play a trick on him. They'd lean a mop against the door, and when he'd go to open the door to see if Elijah was coming, the mop would fall on him and scare him. But it only worked one time. The second year, he knew to expect the mop to be there. They called it the Lord's Cup. And by the Lord, they meant Yeshua. And Paul referred to the table as Yeshua's table. And they believed that Yeshua was present. And when they said, Maranatha, our Lord, come, we think they meant come to the table and preside over our feast. Now, Greeks and Romans ate sacred meals. Greeks and Romans ate sacred meals in the presence of their gods at the temple. So these people who are practicing this, they knew that it had a religious meaning. Jewish people ate their peace offerings or well-being offerings at the temple in the presence of God. Early believers in Yeshua ate meals at Yeshua's table and blessed Yeshua's cup. What is that but equating Yeshua with God? They also had the practice of confessing the name. The early believers had a confession. They had a short creed. The Romans would say, Caesar is Lord. And they celebrated the divinity of dead Caesars. When Caesars died, they said that their spirit ascended and they became divinities, especially Augustus. The early believers, though, said, Yeshua is Lord. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote, and the other night uh, Henry found the reference for us, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Yeshua is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And remember I said, he doesn't mean no one can mouth the words. He means no one can own it. No one can really mean it. It can't really come from your heart unless the Holy Spirit turned the light on inside of you and you're able to believe it. And finally, there's prophecy in Yeshua's name. Who can give prophecies but God? It's a major theme in Isaiah. If you read the second part of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 55, you'll see over and over again, uh, the prophet mocks people who believe that other divinities could give prophecies. He said the stupid statues of the Babylonians can't tell you anything about what's going to happen. The only one who can tell you the new things is God. But the early believers, they believe that Yeshua gave prophecy. Yeshua speaks from heaven to people on a number of occasions, not just in the book of Revelation, even before that. He said to Paul, I am Yeshua whom you are persecuting. And on another occasion, he said to Paul, my kindness is sufficient for you. The Lord, meaning Yeshua, not God the Father, in the book of Acts, shows them in advance that there will be a famine in Judea. Giving a prophecy that a famine is coming is something that God usually does. God's the one who told Elijah there was going to be a drought. Elijah didn't ask Enoch or the angel of the Lord. God told Elijah. Who told the early believers about the famine? Yeshua did. He warns them of Jewish opposition. Paul wants to go to Jerusalem, and Yeshua tells Agabus to go and put a belt on him and bind him with it and say, this is what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. You're going to be bound. Yeshua gave that prophecy. He gave it to Agabus. The one who gave the human prophet the word was Yeshua, not the Father. Singing about and to Yeshua, calling on his name, even praying to him, eating his sacred meal, receiving messages from him from heaven, no Jewish person treated angels or saints this way. The early believers saw Yeshua as much more than an angel, much more than Moses, David, or Enoch, or Elijah. But in spite of all these evidences, it is still hard for many to believe that they thought of Yeshua as divine. And I want to go back over something that I introduced quickly on the first night. 
Because I think now that we've had a little bit more information about this divine Messiah thing, maybe it will mean more to us if we think about this. That is, what the early believers did and did not do when they described the divinity of Yeshua. They did not say Yeshua is God, but they said Yeshua is Lord. You see, they decided that that was a way to handle the mystery of all of this, to take from the Shema the idea that God is both God and Lord. And so they made, a, I mean, you could argue, you could say, well, why couldn't you do it the other way? Why couldn't you say the Father was Lord and that Yeshua was Elohim? In fact, if I, was, if, if I said, okay, let's start the faith all over again and decide how, what custom we're going to use all right, the, the Hebrew Bible has two primary ways of designating God, Elohim and yod vav Which one do you think we should assign to Yeshua and which one do you think we should assign to the Father? I think a lot of us would say, well, the Father's got to be yod vav because that's a more exalted title than Elohim. Interestingly, the early believers picked the other way around. The first time I heard that 1 Corinthians 8, 6 was a midrash on the Shema, I said, wait a minute, you're telling me they picked... The, for the yod vav part, they picked that to be Yeshua, and they picked Elohim to be for God? Why did they pick that way? I still don't know the answer. Anybody have a great idea? More personal. Ah, maybe because, because we know God more personally through his personal name, and since Yeshua is the most personal way we know God. It's the best explanation I've heard yet. It might be. They never said the word was God unless they also said the word was with God. You see... It was okay in John 1.1 to say the word was God, but only because it was right next to the line, the word was with God. Because when you put the two statements together, do you see? When you put the two statements together, they clarify that he's the same yet different. Okay, And you notice that John 1.1 doesn't reconcile those two statements. It's not a systematic theology. We're the ones who always want to now, I, I'm not even getting into whether at Nicaea they got it right when they did this you know, same substance, different persons thing. Maybe that's right, maybe it's not. I, it doesn't matter. The New Testament doesn't get into it. They called him things like the image of the invisible God. They said all things were created by him and for him. They spoke of him being at the right hand of God and having equality with God, of him being the Son who was sent by his Father. They called the Spirit of God the Spirit of Yeshua, they said his presence was everywhere like God's presence. You know, that's interesting. Do people expect Elijah to come to every Jewish table or just one Jewish table at Passover? Do you think when Elijah comes, he's going to come simultaneously to every Jewish Passover table or that there'll just be one lucky Jewish family? It'll probably be Rabbi Silverman's family. That's where Elijah will come. <clears throat> yes, you could keep watch. We should put a camera outside your house at, at Passover. Yeah. They said that Yeshua had the name above all names, which is almost certainly yod heh vav -Heh. I mean, that's pretty bold to say that God gave him the name that is above all names when no Jew could read that and say, we don't know what the name above all names is. Yes, every Jew knows what the name above all names is, yod heh vav -Heh. They avoided language of two gods, which would be ditheism, and they used instead language of a God whose unity was differentiated, which we call binatarian monotheism. And everybody say binatarian monotheism? Good. And a lot of us now believe Trinitarian monotheism. You see, binatarian is like the word Trinitarian. It's just it's two instead of three. Because right now we're talking about the earliest stage of understanding where they understood that Yeshua was God alongside God. The realization that the Spirit was God alongside Messiah and God is another step of the equation, but it hadn't gotten there yet. Certain ideas of the one who manifests himself as two lie behind their conception of Yeshua and God. Now, 
The early believers were not successful in persuading their Jewish peers that what they believed was kosher. So they had this belief that they were compelled to believe that they couldn't explain to anyone satisfactorily. They couldn't convince Paul before Paul saw it himself. They could, Come on, Paul, look. Come on, just be a little more theologically open with you. We're talking about binatarian monotheism. We're not talking about, they couldn't give him a theology lecture and make Paul understand. He said, nope, that's blasphemy. Just like we are frustrated that we can't convince our Jewish community about Yeshua, they were frustrated. They couldn't convince people that they weren't blasphemers. The Jewish world viewed them as believing in two gods. The irony is that for the first three centuries, the Greco-Roman world considered them overly Jewish and excessively monotheistic. To their Jewish peers, they seemed to believe in two gods. The Romans would be delighted for them to believe in 2,000 gods, but the Romans called them atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. So to the Romans, they were atheists, and to the Jews, they were ditheists. You can't please everybody. Sometimes you can't please anybody. Very true. What did the early believers do in their descriptions of Yeshua's exalted status, and what did they not do? They did describe him on a level equal with God. They said things like the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I know I went over this earlier, but I hope it means even more to you now if you've heard some of the, the material. They corporately and individually showed devotion to him in ways reserved by Jews for God alone. We just went over that material. They obeyed him, believed that they were in him, believed that he was present, they imitated him, and they received mysterious communications from him, giving them guidance and peace. You know, there was a time in my development as a leader when I started de-emphasizing Yeshua. And by the way, this was before my faith paradigm got shattered. This was actually in my earlier days, even as a, as a rabbi. You know, I began, we, we'd have Jewish people who didn't believe in Yeshua coming to our services, and I would say, you know, we don't have to make a big deal about Yeshua. We can teach from the book of Genesis or Leviticus and just talk about what it's about. We don't have to relate everything to Yeshua. And, you know, for a while I did that and it just became increasingly dissatisfying because once you know that God has come so close to us that he has become one of us, it's like an impossible thing to ignore. And it's not like Yeshua is a little thing. Yeshua is the central thing. We can't go back and unrealize the divine Messiah realization. Now, I can attend a mainstream synagogue, conservative or something like that, and I can appreciate the teaching there. I can, read, I, I can read a drash by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs and appreciate what he's saying without you know, thinking to myself, oh, oh my gosh, Rabbi Sachs, you need to relate this to Yeshua now. But if Rabbi Sachs knew Yeshua, I think every drash would relate it to Yeshua. Because once you know the divine Messiah realization, you see God in a different way. That's what tomorrow is going to mostly be about how it changes everything. For the early believers, they weren't just a little bit excited about Yeshua. They obeyed him, imitated him, believed he was present, received mysterious communications from him. They said Yeshua is Lord and said it was only possible to say that if the Holy Spirit enabled you to do it. They said in Aramaic, Maranatha, our Lord, come. They used the Shema in Isaiah 45 as texts about Yeshua. They made analogies and used careful circumlocutions, which means roundabout ways of saying it so they didn't come right out and say it, to describe the relationship between Messiah and God without getting overly specific. The image of the invisible God. The radiance of the glory of God. One of the most beautiful images I think I ever heard about describing the relationship between Yeshua and God, Augustine came up with. 
He said, when we step outside on a bright, sunny day and we experience the sun, we feel the warmth of the sun on our face, we see the light of the sun blinding us, that's like Yeshua. But if we could actually go to the sun itself and touch it, that would be the Father. And it's only an analogy. It's not perfect either. There's no perfect analogy for the relationship between any of the persons of the Trinity. But Yeshua is the light and the heat from the sun. The Father is the sun itself. The Father remains transcendent. The Son comes into the world and does everything. They made a linguistic differentiation between Lord and God as a way of describing Messiah in relation to God. Like I said, they called Yeshua Lord and they called the Father God. They described heavenly visionary experiences experiences of Yeshua in heaven having his own divine glory. At the beginning of tomorrow, I'm going to say more about how we know about the visionary experiences. They don't describe very many of them, and they don't go into detail about the visionary experiences, but that's the real reason they believe this. And so that'll be the first thing we cover tomorrow, is what happened to the early believers that made them believe this. They did not say Yeshua is God directly, but described his divinity always in relation to God. They did not try to specify the relationship between Yeshua and God beyond a certain mysterious vagueness. They did write as those who had encountered something incomprehensible and It's when we aren't willing to leave it incomprehensible. It's when we try to make it understandable that we always fail. I I told the story the first night I said, or maybe I said it this morning, several times I would email Rabbi Mark Kinzer or Rabbi David Rudolph about some of the language I intended to use in my book. If I thought what I was saying was slightly questionable, I was trying to make it simple for the reader to understand, and I had a 100% record of having Rabbi Kinzer and Rabbi Rudolph tell me, no, you can't say that. So my book would have been a much worse book if I hadn't checked with some people to think about the language. It's very difficult to discuss the relationship between Yeshua and God without saying something wrong. If you start reading books on the Trinity, you'll find out people rabidly disagree with each other about how to describe the Trinity. Kind of like, you know, Jews have fights over certain issues of halakha. You know, Christians have fights over how to describe the Trinity because it's notoriously difficult to do it. That the early believers saw Yeshua as equal with God is certain. They assumed it and felt no need to explain it, much to our frustration today. But what happened that persuaded them? And how did this divinity make a difference in their lives? In the third part, or excuse me, the fourth part, the final part, tomorrow morning, we'll talk about those last two pieces of the puzzle. They saw the glory of God in the face of Yeshua from heaven. And they desired to live their lives to please him and to be found in him on the last day. And that is what we'll cover in the morning. At what time? 10 o'clock. Questions? Yes. Okay. Yeshua. Uh, And they said his presence was everywhere like God's. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Yes, sir. Interesting. Now, was this a midrash of... All right, so the question for those of you listening in internet land is uh, I talked about a midrash on Isaiah 45, but there also exists apparently a midrash on Isaiah 21 about righteous God and a Savior, identifying the righteous God as God in his judgment and Savior as God in his mercy. So you know the the early rabbis, they... uh, I'm glad you asked that. Because, see, one of the things the early rabbis accused us of is believing in two powers in heaven. And I talk about this in the beginning of Divine Messiah. They wanted, the rabbis had to reconcile this passage in Daniel, where it talks about the ancient of days and the one like a son of man. And it says thrones 
plural. How could there be more than one throne in heaven if there's only one God? Well, the rabbis had to come up with a better explanation. Now, I have to tell you that originally, Akiva, pretty respected rabbi, right, said that's, the other one is for Messiah. But Akiva's disciples said, no, no, there's no way Akiva said that. Someone misquoted him. What he meant was one of the thrones was for God in his judgment and the other throne was for God in his mercy. Because the rabbis often talked about the fact that God almost seemed to be bipolar. So, you know, they actually created this fanciful image where when God would judge, he would sit on one throne. When he wanted to show mercy, he would get up and move over and sit on the other throne. And that was how they reconciled there being more than one throne in Daniel 7. I thought that was pretty creative. So it sounds like you could get a similar midrash like that out of the saying in Isaiah 21, a righteous God and a Savior. Yes, sir. Well, the view of the rabbis, which also happens to be my view and also happens to be J.R.R. Tolkien's view. And, oh, the question is, what do you make of Genesis 126 where it says, let us make man in our image? Well, the rabbis have the same opinion that I have and that J.R.R. Tolkien has, if any of you have ever read the Silmarillion, which is the same opinion that the writer of Job has in Job 38.7. Someone, will you read Job 38.7? Yeah, they have to look it up on their phone. Yes, where were you when all the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? If you read the larger context of the passage, it's talking about the creation. Who created? The rabbi said the angels participated in creation. I agree. Tolkien depicts this in the Silmarillion as Iluvatar, who is God in Tolkien's world, uh, and the Anur, the angelic beings, God gives them the melody, and they make harmonies from God's melody. And the angels are actually allowed to introduce minor elements into the creation when, after God has introduced the major elements. Uh, so when he says, let us make man in our image, you know, the thought could be that the angels were participating with God in the act of creation. I think it's a good view. So the way I would see it, angelic beings are made in the image of God, and we're made in the image of God. And if the angelic beings were made before us, and if they participated with God in creation, then we're made in the image of angels and God. Not clearly. The Bible doesn't answer a lot of systematic theological questions. Well, that, that is a mysterious verse. Right. The reason I didn't use that verse is because being made in the same image that angels are made in is not any evidence that angels are divine. They could be made in the image of the divine just like we are. But, you know, it was tempting, but I didn't think that one was real evidence. I know it's, there's a history of people saying this is a prefiguring of the Trinity, but I don't think so. It certainly doesn't exclude the Trinity, right, or the Binity. Any other thoughts or questions? Yes, sir. So I'm going to confess on Internet land and in front of the congregation that I haven't looked deeply into the uh, Psalm 110 issue. I would like to look at it. Does it say, uh, yod heh said unto Adonai, or does it say, yod heh said unto Adoni? Right, so it depends on whether it says I on the ending or E on the ending. We'd have to look it up. Adoni? Okay, so the Lord said to my master. You're right then. It's a hirik, not a patach. Okay, you're right. It says my master. It doesn't say my Lord as in God. But she said Adoni, right? Yes. But in Genesis 18, at the beginning of Vayera, when Abraham sees the three visitors coming and he runs out to greet them, he calls them Adonai. He doesn't say Adoni. So yeah, you're right. Maybe Psalm 110 could have another explanation, but that didn't stop Yeshua from making a midrash about it, did it? Because you can make creative reinterpretations. Good. Yes, sir. Yes, Hurtado narrows it down to probably being within the first several years. Right. So there are two basic 
I mean, there's more than two, but let's just keep it simple. There are two basic theories about how the belief in the divinity of Yeshua came about. One is that it came about suddenly because it was revealed suddenly, and that's the view that I'm espousing in Hurtado and, and Baucham. And then there's the view of people like Ehrman and Dunn that it developed gradually and that the Gentiles had a lot to do with the whole divinization of Yeshua thing. And they try to make a case for it, uh, but they can't explain how all this stuff could be so early. In fact, Bart Ehrman, in his book, How Jesus Became a God, I think, when he's giving the evidence that somehow this developed gradually, he keeps mentioning early evidences that they believed in Yeshua being divine. He, he tries to skip over the fact that he acknowledges that some of it was very early, and he still tries to say it was very late. In other words, he contradicts himself in his own book multiple times. It's hard to believe. It's called, when you believe something in advance and you try to prove it, you'll still believe it at the end. We're all guilty of that. No, we're not. Maybe, maybe tens off of my books, not millions. Speaking of which, <laughs> you don't want uh, Karen to have to pay the shipping to ship these back to Atlanta, do you? No. So I'll be glad to sign books at the book table. I'll also be glad to answer more questions afterward. Thank you, everybody. I hope I'll see you tomorrow at 10 o'clock.